Hey, Mike here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Dark Poutine early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello and welcome back to Dark Poutine. I am Mike Brown. Across the table from me is a recent returnee from Quebec. Montreal. Montreal. Uh, Matthew Stockton, how are you? Good. How are you? I'm not too bad. Uh, I flew in last night and boy, are my arms tired. (laughs) Yeah, you were taking pictures as you were flying. Yeah. I love that we can do that stuff now and post things on the internet and have internet as we fly. It's really kind of neat. I flew over Kelowna and a colleague of mine works there. I took a picture of Kelowna and said, hey, thinking about you. That's (laughs) As I was flying over him. Yeah. I probably heard you fly over last night. Zoom. Just a reminder, so you're not searching for us next week, Matthew and I will be taking a break on September 26th, much needed, because Matthew, you are now going to the UK to visit family, and it's not planned because of what happened recently, but it's just sort of serendipitous that you'll be there Yes. during the, uh, the, during the big funeral for the Queen. Yes. Um, I'm... Wondering if, I'm wondering if Justin and I can spend a bit of time to go visit her body lying in state. Yeah, that would be... we were both... Royalists? Lo- loyal to her. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So yeah, no episode of Dark Poutine on the 26th of September, and we will be back on October 3rd, 2022. It's going to be October. I know. Of, of the year 2022. Yeah. That's Our insane. Halloween episode is coming up. We're entering like... The last quarter of yeah, the, I almost said of the fiscal. Sorry, I've been in um, office meetings all week. All week. Yeah. It's the last quarter of the fiscal, people. Anyway, <laughs> yeah, let's get on with it. Let's get on with the show. The views, information, and opinions expressed during the Dark Patine podcast are solely those of the producer and do not necessarily represent those of Curious Cast, its affiliate, Global News, nor their parent company, Chorus Entertainment. Dark Poutine is not for the faint of heart or squeamish. Our content is often intense and some listeners may find it disturbing. We are not experts on the topics we present, nor are we journalists. We are ordinary Canadian schmucks chatting about crime and the dark side of history. Let's get to it. Put on your toque, grab yourself a double-double and a Nanaimo bar. It's time to scarf down some dark poutine. You are responsible for obtaining and maintaining at your own cost all equipment needed to listen to dark poutine. Dark poutine can be addictive. Side effects may include, but not be limited to, pausing and questioning the system, elevated heart rate, pondering humanity, odd looks from colleagues as you laugh out loud at work, family members not into true crime worrying about you. Positive side effects may include some perspectives and opinions that you disagree with, as well as some wokeness and empathy. If you don't think dark poutine is for you, consult your doctor immediately. fall evening in 1991, police discovered the bodies of Alfred Critchley, 75, and Virginia Critchley, 73, in the Chatham, Ontario residence they shared with their son and his family. The couple had been brutally stabbed. Alfred was unconscious but alive, and Virginia was barely alive as well. Virginia died in the ambulance on the way to the hospital, and Alfred died later in the hospital, having never regained consciousness. After a brief search, the couple's grandson, Jason Pangburn, 19, was discovered partially buried in a nearby ravine. 
Jason had been executed with a single gunshot to the chest from a 22 caliber firearm. Thanks to Virginia's dying words, suspicion fell on two youths who'd been acquaintances of Jason Pangburn's. Jason Sean Caffell, 18, and a 15-year-old accomplice we'll call CB. You're listening to Dark Poutine, episode 237, Murder in Chatham, Virginia and Alfred Critchley and Jason Pangburn. The name of the accomplice is available online. It's on CBC and all that kind of stuff. Right. But he was charged and convicted as a young offender, so I'm not entirely sure why his name is available. So I just left it off. And anybody else who was a young offender at the time, I left off their names as well. It's really easy to find out who they were, but I don't know why that's of interest to anybody. But if our listeners want to find out, all they have to do is Google. Yeah, well, all you have to do actually is click the link to the uh, court documents that I have at the beginning of the show notes. This case was brought to my attention by Yumber Yarder Stephanie Saw, who shared a link about the case in our case suggestion thread. So thank you, Stephanie. The city of Chatham, Ontario, now part of a single-tier municipality called Chatham-Kent, began as a naval dockyard in 1792 as it straddles the Thames River. And we've talked about the Thames a number of times. Yeah, I'm really surprised that you've written one on Southwestern Ontario instead of me, because this is my neck of the woods. I know it is, (laughs) and and I thought I would scoop you on this one. Uh, The town was named after William Pitt, the first Earl of Chatham. It was built as a naval dockyard, a characteristic shared by Chatham-Kent, England. In England, the name Chatham came from the British root Chetto for forest, and the Old English ham, meaning town, thus the name means forest settlement. The current municipality of Chatham-Kent was created in 1998 by the amalgamation of Blenheim, Bothwell, Camden, the city of Chatham, township of Chatham, Dover, Dresden, Erie Beach, Erie <laughs> Harwich, Highgate, Howard, Orford, Raleigh, Ridgetown, Rodney, Thamesville, Tilbury East, Tilbury, Wallaceburg, Wheatley, and Zone. And it's really weird. All these names are English names. Of course. It's Every South- single one. Southwestern Ontario. So, mm. yeah, this is, this, this is totally my neck of the woods when, gro- when I grew up. And it, it's, this is kind of strange because I bet you Alfred and Virginia mm-hmm. were called Ginger and Al. Probably. And that's, that was, that's my parents' names. Oh, weird. Yeah. According to the area's entry on the website areavibes.com, in stats taken from Statistics Canada data, Chatham-Kent's crime rate is slightly higher than provincial and national averages uh, per 100,000 people. And that gives it a D grade for crime. But the cost of living is, is A+, and as livability attracts more families to the region. A higher crime rate is often an indicator of an area's growth. And Surrey, for example, is one of the fastest growing cities of Canada, and we're all well aware of the crime rate here. Mm. Around 5.30 p.m. on the evening of October 18, 1991, a neighbor who wanted to remain anonymous in the home next to 697 Grand Avenue East in Chatham heard someone pounding on his front door. He'd only been home for 15 minutes and was in the shower when the knocking started. Thinking the pounding would stop, the neighbor continued with his shower, but whoever it was persisted. The man covered himself and went to answer the door. The person who greeted him was Constance Connie Pangburn, the daughter-in-law of the Critchleys and his next-door neighbor. She was extremely upset. The neighbor later told the Windsor Star newspaper, quote, Connie said, call the police. My father-in-law is unconscious and my mother-in-law is lying on the ground. She said her father-in-law was in the bathroom and her mother-in-law was in the kitchen. She said her mother-in-law was in a puddle of blood, end quote. The Critchleys had just moved from Lethbridge, Newfoundland a few weeks earlier. I didn't know there was a Lethbridge in Newfoundland. I did not know that either until I had started research I, I for I always think Alberta when I mm-hmm. saw that word. I was like, I'm from Alberta. I'm like, no, Newfoundland. Yeah. Cool. They'd lived on the rock for 10 years, but Virginia's health was failing, so she wanted to be closer to family, which included their son Richard and his wife Connie and grandson Jason. While Richard, a construction worker, renovated their house to build room for the Critchleys, Virginia, his mother, and Richard's stepfather moved in with the Pangburn family. The home was right next door to the Colonial Motel, which Virginia had owned and run before moving away to Newfoundland a decade earlier. Do you know where that is, the Colonial Motel in Chatham? No. Okay. No, I know where a few of these other places are that you mentioned, though. Okay. 
Connie had biked home from her work at a local daycare. She left work at 5 p.m., and the bike ride took around 20 minutes. She rode into the driveway, just as she did every day. The family cars were in the driveway. Nothing seemed out of the ordinary. But Connie noticed the front door was unlocked and ajar, which was odd. When she went inside, she called, hello, but no one answered. She then noticed the family dog didn't get up to greet her as it always did. It just laid there, kind of cowering. Oh, that's so sad. Yeah. Something felt very off. Connie was horrified at the shock of finding her in-laws on the floor and seeing their blood everywhere. From court documents, quote, Mrs. Pangburn saw her father-in-law, Mr. Critchley, lying on his side in the main floor bathroom. He was breathing but unconscious and had blood on his face. On entering the kitchen to use the phone to call for help, she found Mrs. Critchley lying on her back in a pool of blood, still conscious but breathing laboriously, end quote. Not knowing what else to do, Connie fled next door and asked for help. The neighbor recalled that on his way home, he'd passed an OPP cruiser parked on the street just a few hundred meters up the road. Connie had ridden past the car too. In her shock, she'd most likely briefly forgotten about it. Connie ran off in the direction that she'd seen the patrol car only moments earlier. The neighbor later told the Windsor Star, quote, I didn't think the worst. I didn't think they would die. I thought maybe there had been a burglary and the burglars had knocked them down, end quote. You wouldn't think the worst, right? Right. Like, I'm just picturing poor Connie, like, you know, coming home, normal day, Mm -hmm. and then just how much everything can change. In an instant. And a neighbor thinking, oh, somebody's been knocked over, and Mm -hmm. yeah. OPP Constable Mark Granston had pulled over to do some notes on an unrelated matter. He was riding away when Connie Pangburn ran up to his car and pounded on the window, begging him to come with her, that something had happened to her in-laws. Connie ran back to the house and Constable Granston followed her. According to the Windsor Star, Connie later testified that as she and Constable Granston tried to stop the bleeding from Virginia's injuries, she leaned over Virginia and saw a pulsing but dry open wound in the older woman's throat. Virginia's skin, she recalled, was ashen and gray as the life ebbed out of her into what Connie called a pudding-like puddle of blood on the floor. Mm. Connie asked, Oh, who did this to you? Virginia, weakened, didn't respond verbally, but held up her index and middle finger, the western sign for the number two. Connie asked Virginia if it had been men, and Virginia managed her last word, boys, and soon lapsed into unconsciousness. Wow. That's almost like from a movie when, you know, there's like one last hint given. Mm -hmm. But for her to be able to help set the direction to get some justice for what's happened to her. Yeah. is amazing. I feel so bad for them already. I think because I kind of, you know, named after like the same names of my parents and and sort of where I come from. I'm just like, oh my God, like this is going to be completely senseless, isn't it, Mike? Uh, Yep. Connie's son Jason was also not at home which was odd he was always home before supper she immediately knew the whole ordeal was nowhere near over at least not until she had her son and her daughter Julie back with her safe Julie the Pangburn's daughter had thankfully not been at home at the time of the murders and was unharmed but Jason was missing along with a number of firearms from the home that belonged to him Alfred's wallet was gone too Constable John Melnick and his tracking dog working around the Pangburn residence and on neighboring properties in the hope of tracking whoever had murdered the Critchleys found something. In an overgrown area across the road at approximately 8.30 p.m. that same day, Jason Pangburn's body was located in a ravine area. Connie, Richard, and the rest of the family were beside themselves with grief. When neighbors in Chatham got wind of the third body's discovery and that it had been Jason, the rumors started. Some folks chattered that perhaps the whole affair had been a murder-slash-suicide with Jason, for some bizarre reason, killing his grandparents and then himself. Those who truly knew the family didn't consider that option for a moment. There's a small town for you. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, small town news, mm-hmm. the wrong news, yep. travels so quickly. And we still see it. Um, I see it a lot, actually, with what went on in Nova Scotia in 2020, in April of 2020, when the yeah. 22 murders happened. We saw that, and we're still seeing it. People make a lot of assumptions on things. It's because information isn't flowing readily. Yeah, and somebody makes an assumption. Yeah. The other person 
changes that or adds to it, and it becomes this was what happened. Yeah, it's like the telephone. Game. Yeah. A people from Lethbridge, Newfoundland, a small town of only 400 people from which the Critchleys had recently moved, were floored by the news that Virginia and Alfred had been murdered. According to the Windsor Star, quote, Mrs. Critchley, who had undergone five heart bypass operations, was advised by a doctor to give up the strain of climbing her hillside cottage in Newfoundland, a former Lethbridge neighbor said. Five. Five, yeah. Five. She survived five bypass operations. Those are like, oh, that's like open heart, yeah. isn't it? Mm-hmm. At that time, for sure. That yeah. poor woman. That's a lot of surgery. Yeah. They were wonderful, excellent neighbors, said Florence Bailey of Lethbridge. Alfred was a carpenter and very active in the community, but Virginia stayed home most of the time because of her heart condition. Mr. Critchley walked with a cane, end quote. At the time of her murder, Virginia Critchley was recovering from yet another surgery. The couple were a threat to no one. So some, or two, since she's held up her fingers, yeah. boys thinking they're big men, mm-hmm. killed a, an older gent with a cane and a woman with a heart condition. Yeah. That's, there's so much bravery and, and oh, yeah. You're that, being sarcastic. Right, that. yeah. Court documents indicated the extent of the injuries that the three murder victims suffered. Quote, autopsies were performed on Jason Pangburn, Alfred Critchley, and Virginia Critchley. The fatal wound suffered by Jason Pangburn was caused by a single twenty-two caliber bullet that had entered the left chest through his heart. In addition, a blunt force wound was located on the back of his scalp, as were abrasions to his forehead, cheek, and chin. The cause of death was determined to be gunshot, which caused massive loss of blood. The autopsy on Mrs. Critchley indicated that she had suffered wounds which consisted of 11 defensive wounds to the hands, fingers, left forearm, 12 wounds to the neck, shoulder, chest, and abdomen. There were two deep stab wounds to the right side of her neck. Both of these wounds extended deep enough to sever the jugular vein, thyroid gland, and the trachea. The cause of her death was listed as shock and loss of blood due to stab wounds in the right side of her neck. So that is not one stab. No, that's not just like a... That's, so 11 defensive wounds on our hands, 12 mm-hmm. wounds, right? Other, yeah. Lots of stabbing. That's a frenzied stabbing attack. Yeah. The autopsy on Mr. Critchley revealed that the fatal stab wound was located to the left of his chest, extending inward and deep enough to pierce the left ventricle of his heart. There were two other stab wounds in the abdomen. The cause of Mr. Critchley's death was determined to be shock and blood loss due to a stab wound in the chest involving his heart, end quote. Mm. This one frustrated me in a big way. And and we'll get into why, because the person that led the way is a very frustrating individual. Because you can picture these people Mm -hmm. who are just a good family, right? Yep. Not doing anything to anybody. Jason had gone to school on the morning of his death as usual. He had an uneventful day and left at 3.15. He'd been seen by friends while walking home at around 4 p.m. His teacher later said that Jason was quiet and well-behaved. While attending Chatham-Kent Secondary School, Jason became interested in the militia. Several of his friends were active members. Jason joined the militia, the Essex and Kent Scottish Regiment, on March 28, 1989. His school principal said that Jason Pangburn was highly regarded for his work in the militia. According to the militia's website, quote, The Essex and Kent Scottish is a primary reserve unit within 31 Canadian Battle Group 31 CBG, whose task is to augment Canada's military with trained infantry soldiers. The Essex and Kent Scottish is a regiment with old lineage that can be dated back to 1749 as a French militia at Fort Pontchartrain, Detroit. Although it has unbroken lineage dating to 12 June 1885, Essex and Kent counties produced the first militia organization in Ontario and the first units to engage in combat 1794 outside of Canada. The Essex and Kent Scottish is always hiring intelligent, fit, and confident men and women with an interest in dynamic and challenging training as infantry soldiers. Primarily, new members are high school or university students with time to work one evening a week and one weekend a month during the school year, September to May. Within the first few years of service, new members must also be available to attend full-time courses during the summer 
July to August, where technical skills are acquired for employment on operations and training during their part-time training year, end quote. So my grandfather was a member of the Essex Scottish. Mm-hmm. He um, fought at the Battle of Dieppe, you yeah. know, one of the big Canadian battles. Dieppe is one I think we might do for uh, Remembrance Day this year, because that that's a I'll tough be able one. to tell you lots of stories. There you go. Um, I'm good for this kid, right? Mm-hmm. You know, it's... Um, He's trying to make something of himself and be of service. Sounds like he was doing well in school and he was joining kind of the army, right? Yeah. Yeah. During his training, Jason obtained a firearms acquisition certificate, which allowed him to purchase a variety of firearms and ammunition. He would often target practice with some of his militia friends in a wooded area by the Thames River, several hundred yards east of his residence. So it wasn't unusual when at approximately 4.30 p.m. on the day that Jason died, neighbors of the Pangburns saw three males, one of them Jason, and another wearing a Pittsburgh Penguins hockey shirt walking in the neighborhood. They crossed the road in front of the Colonial Motel and then proceeded across a plowed field toward the Thames River. That was the last time Jason was seen alive. Descriptions of the young males fit with someone who police were familiar with, an 18-year-old named Jason Sean Coffell. Jason Coffell was born on March 4, 1973, and he lived with his parents, Douglas and Catherine Coffell, and his brother Jesse, at Lot 9, Concession 3, Dover Township, RR1, Paincourt, Ontario. You know, I'm wondering if I've ever run into these people when I was young. You might have. He's only three years younger than me. Right. Actually, two. Yeah. Crazy. Coffell belonged to the same Essex-Kent Scottish Militia Regiment as Jason Pangburn. However, rather than becoming friends, the two young men disliked one another and did not associate. Jason Coffell had told friends he didn't like Jason Pangburn. He thought Pangburn was a rat. Coffell had a run-in with police in late 1990. That's a rat. Isn't that like a 1940s term? Yeah. You're a rat, you dirty rat. Yeah. In 1990, Detective Fred Lachine of the Chatham Police Service had pulled Coffell into an interview room. The detective told Caffell that someone had claimed Caffell was dealing in stolen firearm. The detective let slip that it was someone else named Jason who had been their source. Caffell denied the allegations, but it was that piece of information and another conversation that he overheard later that led him to believe that it had been Jason Pangburn who had turned him into the police. Jason Pangburn and other militia members were having a conversation within earshot of Jason Caffell. And Jason Pangburn was explaining to them about how to use Crime Stoppers to report a crime. Okay. During an investigative interview, Jason Pangburn's family brought up a strange occurrence that had happened about a month earlier. From court documents, quote, A man who was partially dressed in camouflage clothing, calling himself Jason, went to the Pangburn home and asked for Private Pangburn. Constance Pangburn did not know this fellow, but directed him to the backyard where her son was helping his father. After the man had left, her son came into the house and told her that, quote, he did not like this guy, that he was crazy, end quote. Mm. Two days after the murders, Coffell had put himself into the investigation in a tangential way. He called police to report that someone had broken into his parents' home and stolen all of his guns and knives. Uh, that's going to backfire on him, isn't it? Yes. Why do they do that? They, they think they're going to throw them off the trail by like actually highlighting and getting in touch with them. And it could be an egotistical thing right. where they in part want to be involved in the investigation in some way, shape or form because they can't just let it go. Because a, a narcissist has to be into the whole thing. and They can't just STFU. Yeah, in a way he wants credit, but he doesn't want to be caught. Oh, I don't like this person. Police decided they had to talk to Jason Coffell further. They interviewed Coffell and his friend, 15-year-old CB. Based on what the pair had said, and thanks to other evidence the police had collected, they felt they had enough. On November 1st, 1991, Jason Sean Coffell and CB were arrested. Coffell and CB were charged with three counts of first-degree murder and the deaths of Virginia and Alfred Critchley and their grandson, Jason Pangburn. More after a quick break. Yeah! 
You know you need protein to fuel results, but it's not easy when you're drinking the same bland chalky shake every day. Stop punishing yourself and get to GNC for the best protein in the game, including all the hottest brands and crave-worthy flavors that'll keep you coming back for more. We're talking protein that legit tastes like cookies, your favorite cereals, indulgent desserts, and more. So bust out of your protein rut and actually look forward to those shakes with unbeatable protein at unbeatable prices. Fuel your fitness with protein at GNC. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. And we are back. Matthew, thoughts so far? This is one of those ones where the word why mm-hmm. is big in my head. Yeah. Some of the stories, you know, there's like a bit of a looping story between people. Yeah. This is just why it's feeling so senseless. Mm-hmm. I mean, all murder is senseless. Yeah. But this one particularly feels like it. Presented with the evidence against them gathered so far, Jason Coffell and CB slowly began to relate to the police the details of what had happened in the little house beside the Colonial Motel on the late afternoon of October 18, 1991. Jason Coffell admitted that he'd killed Jason Pangburn and Mr. Critchley and Mrs. Critchley. He described how he'd gone about killing them. It was also during this interview that Coffell told police that they could find the stolen guns in a specific ditch near Dover Township. But when police searched the location, they found nothing. Jason Caffell had sent them on a wild goose chase. No matter, though, they'd get the evidence they needed. On November 3, 1991, police went to the home of Jason Caffell's parents, Douglas and Catherine. They had a search warrant in hand. In the hayloft of a barn on the property, they hit the jackpot. The items they seized and cataloged included the guns stolen from the Pangburn residence, Alfred Critchley's wallet and identification, as well as the murder weapons, the knives, and twenty-two caliber revolver used in the killings. Also present were the guns reported stolen by Jason Coffell on October 20th, 1991, in his pathetic effort to throw the police off his scent. He's really not too bright. No. He's not too bright at all. Do you think he was, do you think he took all that stuff to try to sell it? Like, why would he have, like, because there must be some sort of, um, market for for ids well he gets into what his thinking was his thinking was later on but it's kind of there was lack of thinking well no it's kind of a bizarre sort of meandering uh egotistical narcissistic thing okay after a search of cbs the police came up empty he'd been the one allegedly wearing the pittsburgh penguins hockey jersey during the murders but the sweater was nowhere to be found it later came to light that a friend of cb and Cofell who we'll call D.B., had hidden the jersey for them. D.B., also a juvenile, was eventually convicted as an accessory after the fact. Jason Sean Coffell was an interesting character. As police dug deeper, a strange narrative emerged about the creation of a shadowy group that Coffell called the Orion Foundation, of which he fancied himself, of course, its leader. The group's genesis was a tall tale of narcissistic bullshit spun by Coffell to impress his militia buddies into joining his group. Coffell claimed that it all started during a trip to Toronto where his family was participating in a horse show when he was 17. Coffell alleged that he met a man in a Toronto bar who was a, quote, police officer involved in drug enforcement. At some point in the evening with the cop, Coffell claims he was witness to that person being shot Coffell said that he'd acted fast and taken the wounded man to a warehouse where he received help from other mysterious people the man was involved with. From court documents, quote, Mr. Coffell and this police officer met the following morning. Mr. Coffell was asked by the officer to set up an organization such as Orion Foundation in his home area. Mr. Coffell wrote a charter of rules for the group, recruited persons in grades 11 and 12, and joined the militia, which would provide good training for the members of the group. The group had no use for drugs or drug traffickers and set up themselves as a pseudo-paramilitary organization 
to conduct a war on drugs. To effect their self-inspired mission, the group placed mail orders and obtained guns from the United States, end quote. So he's a total fantasist. Yeah. He's concocted this whole world around himself that is a complete nonsense. And eventually it leads to the murders of three innocent people. Why didn't he just pick up a guitar or something? Yeah, right? Just be creative. You know, like, I know being bored in a small town, right? Mm-hmm. Just pick up a guitar. <laughs> I don't know, like, if you think about it. So he's recruiting people in grades 11 and 12 to be part of this paramilitary of organization. Of course, completely fake. This guy's making it up, yeah. right? Like, like, oh, yeah, a police officer told me to, like... Yeah, he's going to choose a 17-year-old boy. That he just met once in Toronto. Right, in a bar. But he helped him out, so that's why. He's 17. He's at a horse show with his parents. He wouldn't have been in a bar. Yeah, 17 years old in a bar. And... I actually might have been at the horse show. I was dating somebody whose parents had horses. Oh. At about that year, we went to the horse show as well. Oh, there you go. One of the golden Palomino bit somebody's finger off. Oh, dear. Yeah. I thought about that too. So he's in a bar at 17 and I, you look at him, the pictures that I sent you of him, he doesn't look like he could get into a bar even at 19. Yeah, some of us did. I could get into bars at 14. Yeah. Right? I did a few times. Yeah. And at 16, I always did because I had like this big old mohawk and stuff. So, sure. So I think people just didn't, couldn't see past that. But yeah, he's he looks young. You know, yeah, you go to Toronto with your parents for a Hosher, you're not going to be meeting a police officer in a bar. No. <laughs> it was Jason Caffell's recruiting efforts that had led police to interview him in 1990 when the fateful Jason name was accidentally dropped by the detective speaking with Caffell. Another young man, Jared Zimmer, also came forward with some disturbing information indicating that Caffell had been planning to harm Jason Pangburn. Zimmer told police that on October 6th, 12 days before the murders, he was riding with Jason Caffell and another friend, Mark Foster, in Caffell's truck. They were on their way back from Toronto where, at Caffell's urging, they had gone to roll a gun dealer named Daly, but Daly did not show up. It isn't clear that Daly ever existed or was a figment of Caffell's twisted mind made up to impress his pals. On the way home, they stopped near Jason Pangburn's house. Zimmer and Foster watched as Jason Caffell opened the glove box and took out a handgun and put it in his jacket. Caffell told Zimmer and Foster to stay put and got out of the vehicle. They watched as Caffell went up to the house and snuck around into the backyard, peering into the windows of the Pangburns' home. After a few minutes, Jason returned to the truck, frustrated. He told his friends that there were too many people around and that he would have to, quote, do him some other time. Kofel had concocted other missions for the Orion Foundation unrelated to Jason Pangburn's murder. If I was in a car with somebody mm-hmm. who had grabbed a gun and then come back, I'm going to do this another time, I would not be ever hanging around with that person again. No kidding. Right? Like, what are these kids doing? Or, I don't know, I might, <laughs> it wouldn't have been a cool thing to do, but I might go and talk to my parents about it if it happened. I probably would have as well. Yeah. Yeah. Because that's just one level up, right? Right. From court documents, quote, Mr. Coffell had also planned to break into Parkinson's gun store in London, Ontario. That's on Warncliffe Road, I think. I, I think. It's been there for a long time. I, I've been there a few times. And so he was planning to break in during the weekend of October 13, 1991. And he had prepared a handwritten diagram of the store and location of various weapons. He had also prepared written assignments for those members of the group who were participating. His instructions included directions with respect to the area of the store from which each member would steal items and what to do if the police arrived. He told them to, quote, fire at the tires and grill if the officers got out of their cruiser and to wipe down the shell casings in order to remove fingerprints. Mr. Coffell also instructed Jared Zimmer to go with another member when it was dark and steal a truck. Mr. Zimmer carried a loaded shotgun, but since he was unable to locate keys to the target truck, the raid on Parkinson's gun store was cancelled, end quote. It's ridiculous. Luckily, he sounds like he's pretty useless generally, mm-hmm. and there could have been a lot more, but... And I also feel for, you know, gun stars have to have some good security, but, you know, it's a family business as well, right? Right. Like, it's just, these guys are just running amok, aren't they? Yeah. Thanks to numerous interviews with Coffell, CB, and other witnesses, police were able to piece together what had happened on October 18, 1991. 
Jason Cofell had gone to school as usual at Pine Secondary School in Chatham and had left around 2 p.m. After running some errands, Jason drove to a convenience store at the corner of McNaughton Avenue West and Sandy Street in Chatham. There's a Circle K there today. It was there that Cafell met CB and a few other friends. Jason convinced CB to come with him, claiming he had a shotgun to sell. CB hopped into the truck and Jason drove off. CB was unaware of where they were going or who they were going to see. Cafell pulled his vehicle into the Pangburns driveway just before 4.30 p.m. Leaving CB in the car, Cafell got out, went up to the door, knocked, and was let inside. Cafell then returned to the truck with Jason Pangburn. Cafell showed Pangburn the shotgun he'd claimed to be selling, as well as a 22 caliber handgun. Cafell asked Jason Pangburn if he'd like to test fire the pistol, and Jason said yes, falling right into Cafell's trap. Jason Pangburn led CB and Cafell to one of his favorite secluded shooting spots, a ravine in the woods. It was at this point around 4.30 p.m. that the trio were seen walking across a plowed field towards the Thames River and into the wooded area, CB wearing his distinctive Pittsburgh Penguins jersey. A target was chosen, and Cafell offered three shots each. CB fired off three quick rounds at the target and handed the pistol to Jason Pangburn, who then took his turn. After taking his three shots as agreed, Pangburn handed the firearm back to Jason Cafell. Cafell took two shots at the target and then turned quickly, shooting Jason Pangburn in the left side of his chest. Contrary to what Hollywood shows us, people do not just drop after having been shot. This was so for Jason Pangburn. Stunned and staggered, he managed to run a brief distance. Jason Cafell easily chased Pangburn down and bashed the wounded young man on the back of his head with the butt of his gun, causing Jason Pangburn to drop. Although Jason had been shot through the heart and was quickly bleeding to death, he managed to ask Cafell why he'd shot him. Jason Cafell replied, Because you pissed me off. Cafell proceeded to kick Jason Pangburn in the chest and bashed him on the head with a nearby bottle. Cafell put a large rock on Jason's head and half-heartedly partially covered him with dirt and leaves. Fifteen-year-old CB was terrified. At this point, Jason Cafell threatened CB's life, saying that if he didn't follow Cafell's orders, he and his entire family would be the next to go. The pair then returned to Cafell's truck, where Jason produced a couple of nasty-looking knives. Jason told CB to put the knife up his sleeve that they were going inside the Pangburns' home. As they walked up to the door, Jason Cafell told CB to, quote, stab her when I tell you, end quote. They knocked on the door, and Alfred Critchley answered. Jason Cafell told Alfred that Jason Pangburn had gone to the mall for a moment and that he'd told he and CB to wait inside, that he'd be back in five minutes. Alfred let them in. From court documents, Alfred Critchley had got up to go to the bathroom and had left Cafell and CB alone with Virginia. After approximately 15 to 20 minutes, Mr. Cafell stood up and said that they had better go. He turned to CB and said, Remember what I told you. You don't do this. You're dead. He then told CB where to stab Virginia Critchley. CB stabbed Mrs. Critchley three times. Then Mr. Cofell took the knife from CB and stabbed her repeatedly in the throat and neck area. At one point, he tried to slit her throat. Mr. Critchley was coming out of the bathroom when he was stabbed three times in the chest by Mr. Cofell. In falling, Mr. Critchley's body disconnected the bathroom clock at 5.12 p.m. Mr. Cofell then went upstairs and took several rifles belonging to Jason Pangburn. Before leaving the house, he also removed Mr. Critchley's wallet, money, and identification. Mr. Cofell and CB left the residence. As Mr. Cofell backed the truck away, he stated, If any of the neighbors saw us, we would have to go back. As they drove away in the direction of downtown Chatham, they passed a police cruiser parked on the side of the road and also saw a lady on a bicycle heading the other way toward the Pangburn residence. Oh, that was the police and uh, Connie? Yeah. Wow. The lady was Mrs. Pangburn, who was returning home from work. Mr. Cofell turned his vehicle around and headed back past the Pangburn home where he watched the lady on the bicycle go into the driveway. At this point, he said, Oh, I hope she didn't see us. If she did, we'll have to go back. Also from court documents, Cofell went into further detail about the murders. 
Mr. Caffell also indicated that he stabbed Mr. Critchley, who fell and hit his head on the bathroom sink. Mrs. Critchley was lying on her back, bleeding, and was saying, I'm okay, I'm okay, when Mr. Caffell told her that she would be and slit her throat. When asked by the interviewing officer as to why he would kill two innocent people, Mr. Caffell replied, nobody is innocent, end quote. Narcissism, but a dick. Yeah. Sorry. I've got nothing. I'm trying not to swear too much. No, you can swear. On the show, but he's just a fucking dick. (laughs) Yes, he is. I mean, I'm just like, oh my God, you are such a dick. Yeah. Right? Nobody is innocent. They were innocent. Oh, totally they were. Period. Yeah. Right? Yep. And and like how close was Connie actually to becoming a victim? I wonder if they hadn't seen that police, if they would have got like gone in you know maybe yeah maybe uh she's lucky well unlucky to have seen what she saw but lucky to be alive lucky to be alive yeah cb admitted to his part in the killing of virginia critchley and subsequently pleaded guilty to second degree murder the other charges were dropped at cb's sentencing the court heard testimony that the youth had quote fallen in with the wrong crowd and had been warned by his mother to steer clear of Kofel and his crew. Her pleas had fallen on deaf ears, and only five days later the murders occurred. CB's lawyer said that, having just seen Kofel murder Jason Pangburn, the youngster had been in fear of his own life and that of his family when he'd stabbed Virginia Critchley following Kofel's orders. According to the Windsor Star newspaper, quote, pre-sentence reports delivered to Judge Larry DeConing said the teen suffered from feelings of inadequacy because of the absence of his father, who died 10 years previously, and the recent departure of an older brother who left the family home. Crown attorney Paul Bailey said the youth was misled easily and couldn't explain why he, quote, continued to participate in the brutal process. De Koning also considered 12 statements from the victim's family before making his decision, end quote. Ultimately, the judge threw the book at CB, giving him the heaviest sentence possible for a young offender, three years in prison. The judge then said that this was, quote, the most tragic case I have ever dealt with in nearly 18 years. Kofel's trial was held in nearby Goderich. His attorneys had argued that due to coverage in the press and strong local beliefs in his guilt for the murders, he might not receive a fair trial in Chatham. Godridge isn't that far from Chatham. They would have had the same news. <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> I guess, but maybe a different jury pool. Yeah, probably a different jury pool. Among other witnesses, Jared Zimmer testified at Caffell's trial that on October 13, 1991, Jason Caffell spoke to a group of four friends about silencing Jason Pangburn and getting revenge on him for, quote, snitching. All four discussed different methods of getting rid of Jason Pangburn. It was Jason Caffell who suggested killing him gangland style by killing everyone in the house. Jared Zimmer was later convicted of possession of a weapon dangerous to the public peace. On November 17, 1992, Jason Caffell was found guilty and convicted of three counts of first-degree murder. He was sentenced to imprisonment for 25 years concurrent on each count with no possibility of parole until those were served. Jason Caffell participated in courses and counseling while incarcerated and began to go through the motions suggested in his rehabilitation plan. In a 2007 application for early parole, psychiatric reports given to the court described a disturbed young man from court documents. Quote, One interviewer noted the degree of joviality Mr. Caffell displayed in discussing the murders. At times, Mr. Caffell attempted to indicate he could not remember the details but at the same time blamed C.B., He stated that it was CB who had suggested that they return to Mr. Pangburn's home to obtain additional guns. Mr. Coffell stated that he was punched by Mr. Critchley and that he stabbed Mr. Critchley in reaction. It is noted in the report that Mr. Coffell described these events with a smile and no hint of remorse or regret. There was no evidence that Mr. Coffell suffered from thought disorder, delusions, or hallucinations, end quote. Sounds like a real prince. And, okay, well, you know, if I was Mr. Critchley, I'd probably be punching him, too, because he stabbed my wife. Right. So, Mr. Critchley was in the bathroom, I guess, Yeah, so, oh, it's not my fault because he punched me. Because you just murdered his wife. Right. (laughs) He probably didn't get punched at all. I hope he got one in, at least. Yeah. 
Dr. A. McDonald, a psychiatrist who had dealings with Jason Caffell, wrote, quote, There is evidence of a mixed personality disorder with predominantly antisocial and narcissistic features as well as some obsessive features. At times, the patient appeared to be presenting a somewhat feeble effort at feigning psychiatric illness. This was not persuasive. Although no management problem at this facility, he did show rather obvious amusement and disdain of sicker co-patients. I am very doubtful that this young man is a candidate for any known form of psychiatric treatment. He is strikingly devoid of normal, normal moral sensibilities, and this is a capacity which psychiatric treatment is not generally successful in inducing in someone inherently lacking in it, mm. end quote. So a psychiatrist is saying, there is no way for us to treat this person. Yeah. The families of the Critchleys and Jason Pangburn were not in favor of Caffell's early release, of course. Mm. They shared victim impact statements with the court. Jocelyn Sesford, one of eight daughters of Alfred Critchley, wrote, and that number hit me hard when I read that, eight daughters. Mm. So it's not just, there aren't just three people murdered. Mm-hmm. As, us- as usual, there's always this all the, ripple all, effect. All the kids, all pain. the grandkids. Yeah. Right? Jocelyn wrote, quote, This is not an easy tape to make, but I do this because I want people to know that my father meant so much to me and my children and to my family. Dad and I had a lot of things in common, and losing my father was like losing another half of me, another part of me, of who I was. My father and I often sang in church. My father also did some preaching, and I, in turn, followed in his footsteps. My dad and I loved to fish. We could talk about anything. He was a very smart man. I remember back to that day, that Friday evening, just after 5 o'clock, when my sister called me and told me that this terrible, terrible thing had happened in that my father was alive, but just barely. Virginia was already dead. They hadn't yet found Jason, and all I could do was just scream. I couldn't even speak. I just gathered my children around me and we knelt down and we just prayed that if it was God's will that he would save my dad, but it was not to be. I remember calling my sister Gladys and I heard her screaming on the phone. But the impact didn't really hit me until I was driving home. It takes me about an hour to drive from her place. I remember it started to rain. I just pulled the car over to the side of the road because I started to cry so hard I didn't want to get into an accident. Oh, I'm getting actual little tears in my eyes yeah, hearing this. This is not easy. I just had to scream and pound on the steering wheel because I couldn't believe that anyone could just take lives so irresponsibly, so randomly for no reason. My kids adored their grandfather, and so it was hard to see them suffer and to hold them when they were crying and wondering why anybody would want to hurt their grampy. There was nobody to be with my father to hold his hand. He had to die by himself, and that's not what we wanted for our father. At the funeral home, I saw my father in his casket. Now all I wanted to do was run to him, open his shirt, thinking that if I could kiss him and annoyed him with my tears, somehow he would come back to life. I looked at Virginia, and I looked at all the cuts on her hands and the slits across her throat and wondered how anyone could do something so horrible. And doing that to Jason, whose life hadn't even begun, it had been taken away for what? I wish I could tell you more about him, but I will close with just asking you, to please not let this guy walk away after serving such a small amount of time for such horrendous crimes. He took away what I can't get back. Neither has he come to this family to even ask for forgiveness. That says a lot to me. It speaks volumes. Anyone who is truly repentant would certainly want to ask for forgiveness, and so I ask you to hear this tape and please to honor us and to honor our family. End quote. Oy vey. If somebody really wants to get released and really feels bad about it have some have a conversation with the family take responsibility not necessarily they might want to hear you but write you know reach like have your lawyer send them a a letter that you write or something Mm -hmm. if you're contrite if you're contrite is the big sort of operative word there connie pangburn jason's mother and the person who discovered the crime scene in her home and came close to being murdered herself also wrote quote My husband says he can't bear to do this, to dredge up all the pain and anger again, so I guess it's up to me. You want to know how I'm coping with life after this horrendous crime? Well, right now I'm sitting here with tears streaming down my face, trying to find the words to tell you. 
It's been nearly 16 years, but to me it seems like time has stood still. The tears are never far from the surface. It only takes a glimpse of some young men in the mall or somewhere who resembles our son, and my heart leaps, and I stand staring until I get a better look and realize it's not him. It never will be him. He'd be 35 years old now, but in my mind he's always 19, so young and vibrant, so full of plans, just on the edge of adulthood. We never got to see him choose a career, get married, or have children. And I'm angry, so very, very angry. This didn't have to happen. It's not like losing someone to a terminal illness or even a tragic accident. It was so needless, so cold, for all three of them. It's all burned into my mind what I found in the house. The events of the following days play through my mind like a nightmare. Alfred Critchley was a sweet, kind man. As for Virginia, my mother-in-law, I loved her very much. She was a stately, commanding presence, and in any gathering. She was interested in world events and often wrote to political leaders and other world figures. At one time, she served on Canada's Housing Design Council. She had a big heart and loved to help people in need. She was a great cook and was the happiest when she was feeding people, especially children or families down on their luck. And our son Jason, what kind of boy was he? Jason was a great kid, and he would have been a wonderful man. He was artistic and started winning art contests while in kindergarten. At age eight, his favorite author was Pierre Burton. <laughs> he read several Burton books that year, including The Last Spike. His final fall in school, he told me he had decided to graduate and join the army and go to university and study history. He wanted to be a war historian. Jason was a nice, well-liked boy who had many friends. He was still attending church and still came for a hug and kiss goodnight. I know he wasn't perfect, but he was still a great kid and I miss him so much. So what about now? Am I afraid for the future? Very definitely, yes. Sometimes when I answer the phone and nobody is there, my imagination runs wild and I wonder if it's a killer on the other end. When the doorbell rings at night, I wonder if it's him. I've lost much of my enthusiasm for life. I have a lot of anger. This is the worst thing that has ever happened in my life. Our whole family has been changed because of it. I look at things very differently now, but I will survive this. My husband and I have great faith in God. We also have a network of great friends and family, end quote. Jason Caffell's early parole application was denied in 2007. Good. Yeah. Over the next nine years, though, things changed. From CBC News. Released to a halfway house on parole in 2016, Jason Caffell was required to avoid direct or indirect contact with any members of the victim's family avoid association with anyone involved or believed to be involved in criminal activity, and avoid association with any person known to be or believed to be a member of the Canadian Armed Forces, end quote. In the ensuing four years since his day parole was granted, Jason had apparently done enough to secure his freedom, according to the parole board at least. After a hearing in January 2020, Jason Sean Coffell was given full parole. Coffell claims he's a changed man. From an article in the Chatham Daily News after Jason's release, reporter Elwood Shreve quoted Coffell, quote, Coffell said people often believe inmates don't have the capacity to change. So when they come out, even though they want to change and they try to change, often they're not given the chance because all society wants to see is the person that went in and not the person that's come out, Coffell said. That's their issue, not ours as a society, though. Right. right. Like, I do believe in... I've spoken about this, but sorry, right? It's, you know, you're going to have to deal with that. You murdered people. Right. People are, people are going to hold grudges. Yeah. Absolutely. And, yeah. and you have to, you have to build that trust. So, you know, mm-hmm. don't try to change society. Actually, just try not to kill somebody in the first place. Right. Kafel went on to say, quote, I believe that I spent my time in there wisely and spent a lot of time bettering myself so that when I do try to reintegrate, and I'm trying to reintegrate, that I am able to manage and able to function within society despite hurdles that are put up, end quote. Like, look at that. So you, do you know how I decode this? Okay. It's it's narcissism again. Mm-hmm. It's, oh, you guys are going to give me hurdles, and I, and I hope I can manage, and society doesn't give people a chance. Right. Well, too bad, buddy. It, it, yeah, it doesn't feel like he's taking responsibility for... No. Yeah. But at the same time, I mean, you know... The doctors in that report, that psychiatrist said that what 
They don't think he can change. He's not treatable. Yeah. So there you go. So he's given a life sentence. He serves his time. He's out now. Um, he was, you know, in jail for quite some time. I, I str I'm struggling with this one because it's, it, it's one of these cases where doctors have said this guy is not rehabilitatable mm -hmm. in this way. But what changed? I didn't see any reports to the contrary. So maybe yeah. he has changed. I guess time will tell. This case was presented in 2019 in season two, episode three of the true crime docudrama series, The Case That Haunts Me. And that's it for Dark Poutine episode 237, Murder in Chatham, Virginia and Alfred Critchley and Jason Pangburn. I hope he did right by Virginia and Alfred and Jason. Yeah. Yeah, this was, like I say, it wasn't an easy one for it's me. It's so sad. Because I, I kept thinking like, I knew a lot of militia kind of nerds growing up. Yeah. You know, and I'm sure you might have known a few of those guys who yeah. took their roles very seriously and some some defined themselves by it. And yeah. I think that's what happened with this Kofel guy, maybe. Um, this is just my opinion, but perhaps he saw that as a way to make himself something. It, he felt smaller than he actually was. He doesn't look like he was a big guy. Well, I think he, he did the wrong thing though. When you join groups, oh, sure. when you join groups like this, it's about teamwork and it's about um, integrity, mm -hmm. right? That's what you're supposed. To, you're taught there. He took it about power, right? Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Find a fresh take on a fall getaway to Wilmington, North Carolina and beaches. Enjoy hiking trails in a state park, fresh seafood with a sight of live music and fall festivals galore. Then live it up along the Riverwalk in Wilmington's historic downtown. With three island beaches, Carolina, Curie and Wrightsville and a vibrant downtown, you get the best of the Carolina coast all in one place. Plan your fall getaway at WilmingtonandBeachesVacation.com. That's right. It's time for voicemails. You can leave us a message at 1-877-327-5786 or 1-877-DARK-PTN. We'd love to hear from you. Let's see who called us this week. Okie dokie. It looks like we have three voicemails this week. Three. Three voicemails from different folks. Toi. Toi. So let's listen to the first one and see what they have to say. Hey guys, it's Kelsey from Red Deer calling again. That's so weird. I was just leaving a voicemail and it cut me out. Uh, I was just calling to say that I really need to see Matthew's pink outfit. And I also wanted to thank you guys for the podcast that you did regarding uh, my cousin Zachariah Rathwell. Um, that was in the mass murder that happened back in 2014. Um, I've been a long listener and I think you guys have always handled everything with such gratitude and and, you know, as a family member, I really do appreciate how you guys go about it. Um, so thank you for all that you guys do. Continue being amazing. Um, and I say this with all the love in the world, but please go shit in your hat. Thanks. Uh, so Zachariah Rathwell was one of the victims during the Calgary Five stabbings that right. we covered a long time ago. Right. So it's in, I'm always honored when a family member calls in and says we did a good job covering yeah, well, also something. Late condolences again. So. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the time doesn't heal. Often, right. And we but. see that over and over again. We yeah. heard that with Colin Luxinger and Valerie McPherson in our prior two episodes. We hear it again in this episode. This is why we don't cover things like children who have just died. Cases we we and, get a lot of requests for that. Yeah, and it's it's like it's just like I I would not do that to the family, right? No. Um, and children especially. It's like, even just, hard covering something like this particular case because it is so it 
it's still fresh for people. Yeah. They still remember it happening. Yeah. And even when we do cover like historical ones, like from the 1800s and there's kids, it still bothers them, right? Yeah. And I will show you my pink outfit sometime. Someday, Matthew will post It's pictures. not just pink. It's pink with kittens, I have you know. Exactly. <laughs> Let's listen to another voicemail here. Hi, Mike and Matthew. I'm on my way back to Anagadish right now. And uh, I'm trying to listen to Dark Keen, but I had to turn my bass all the way down because Matthew's beautiful voice is so deep that it just it's resonating all throughout my car. So, anyways, um, my name's Kale. My pronouns are they, them, and uh, go shit in your hat. Bye. So we had an alien call in to to complain about the sound of Matthew's voice. It wasn't a complaint. Well, I guess. Had to turn the bass Gale down. from Inaginish. Gale from Inaginish. Turn the bass on really loud. Yeah, exactly. And sit on the speaker. <laughs> oh, no. Matthew Stockton said that. Mike Brown did not. <laughs> Thank you for calling, Gale. Yes, exactly. Oh, Inaginish. Yes. And, uh, I like saying that. Yeah, anti-Ganish. Inaginish. Inganish. There's also Inganish. Is there? Yeah. There's lots of Ganish. In, is, is there out Ganish? No, I don't think so. Inzies and outies? No. Anyway, let's move on to our next voicemail uh, and our last one. Please, yeah. please be nice. Yeah, and not be a robot. Hey, Mike and Matt. I'm Amber from a small, small town in Ontario called Wasega Beach. But I'm actually from... Lance, Nova Scotia. Mike, you might know it being that you're from Bridgewater. You might know East Camps. I'm not sure, but sadly, what put us on the map in East Camp was the 2020, not mass shooting, very big difference, um, that some jackass decided to do. I will not name him. He is just known as the jackass. Um, anyways, Go shit in your hat. Cool case to look at is one, I unfortunately forget the poor victim's name, but it was featured on uh, Dark, Dark Water Crimes. It was a mother's intuition, that episode. Really interesting case because my dad actually lived in Ormocto, New Brunswick, and that case went down and went to high school with the victim. Anyways, sorry to keep you on long. There you go. And she said she's from East Hans. Yes, I know where East Hans is. And now she's in Wasaga Beach. Wasaga Beach. It's a nice, and, uh, nice little beach. Uh, I know well where Hans is because uh, my mother grew up around okay. that area. So, mm-hmm. yeah, Wasaga Beach. My is birth mom. Close to, to Barry as well. There you um, go. On the water. I've been there. Nice. I've, I've, I've sunbathed on Wasaga Beach. My, my friend Dana owns a sports bar. In Barrie, Ontario. Yeah? Yeah. Dana's Dana's sports bar? Uh, no. Dana, is Dana a boy or a girl? Dana is a girl. Okay. Because they're boy Danas as well, you know? Yes, I know. Mm-hmm. Um, it's called the Locker Room. Sounds like a gay bar. <laughs> it could be. No, it's not. It's definitely not. But it's, it's called the Locker Room and it's on 201 Cundles Road East. Uh, so Dana owns the Blue Oyster. No, she doesn't. She owns the locker room. <laughs> but anyway, uh, she's a, she's a good egg. So if you're in Barrie, Ontario, go to the locker room and, and have yourself a, a beer there and, and tell Dana hello from Mike Brown. She'll she'll know. She'll she'll laugh and she'll probably have a story about me because I was an idiot. I bet you were. Oh my gosh, I used to hang out with her uh, big brother who's passed away. Oh. But uh, yeah, that's that. That's it for this week's voicemails. Again, you can leave us one at one 327 5786 or one 327 We'd love to hear from you, even if it is just to say hi and to tell us to go shit in our hats. If you're stumped for what to chat with us about, a quick story is welcome. Just to pull back the curtain a little bit, when Matthew and I recorded this, it was a few weeks ago and there were no patrons or donut money donors at the time. Now, I realize on editing this, there are a number of you who have since donated, and you'll hear your shout-outs in subsequent shows when we're back. We love you. Thank you. Thanks to all our patrons and donut money donors past and present for your generosity. It helps to keep the show going, 
You can become a patron of Dark Poutine at patreon.com slash darkpoutine. For a one-time donation, you can send us donut money via PayPal using our email address, darkpoutinepodcast at gmail.com. If you don't already subscribe to the show, it would mean a lot if you did. You can easily find Dark Poutine on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. If you haven't gotten yours yet, my book, Murder, Madness, and Mayhem, is available to order via a link on the Dark Poutine website. And speaking of darkpoutine.com, please check it out for show notes and other cool stuff. We'd appreciate it if you took the time to give Dark Poutine a like or a follow on Facebook and Instagram. Most importantly, thank you for listening. And tell your friends about us. Word of mouth is a powerful thing. And a reminder for everybody, like we said at the beginning, we will not be here on September 26th. We will be away because Matthew is in the UK. Uh, the UK. So cheerio, good chops. I'll see you on the 26th. Pip, pip, cheerio. And uh, we will see you. We will see the rest of you. On October 3rd. Well, we won't see them, but they'll hear us. Yeah, they'll hear, well, they can see, like, the Dark Poutine logo on their phone. That's true. Anyway, don't forget to be a good egg and not a bad apple. Bye. Bye. Her name is Elspeth. Elspeth Tassioni. You know her as the offbeat but brilliant defense attorney from The Good Wife and The Good Fight. You've been a very busy little bee. Buzz, buzz. Now she's in New York with the NYPD. This is very different. Better. But still using her unconventional ways to find the truth. You're trying to sniff me, Miss Tassioni? <laughs> Elspeth, new series Thursdays on Global. Stream on Stack TV.